episode of Power Move Makers. This series was created with a simple goal in mind, to bring to the table high-level executives, successful entrepreneurs, and just all-around inspiring human beings. Now, this week's guest, I have been a fan of his, and I have watched him over the years, and I think he is so incredibly inspirational. Um, he's the founder and CEO of Maven. Maven is a hair extension company that has this ingenious business model. They allow local hair stylists to serve as their sales force and sell the hair products directly to their clients. How ingenious is that? Deshaun Amira, welcome to the Power Move Maker Show. I hope I didn't botch up your last name too bad. It's all good. It's all good. You got it right. Uh, yeah, no, thank you, man, for having me. And uh, and I was, you know, like I was telling you beforehand, thank you also for, uh, you know, all the contributions you made to hip hop and uh, creating that, that environment that really showed us uh, the first entrepreneurs to model ourselves after and really know that there was ways that we could make money um, if we were just creative. So anyway, I'm glad to be here. Now, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. I love your story. And I love, you know, just so you know, the Power Move Makers platform, I really try to bring forth incredibly inspirational um, people like yourself. I, I like to showcase people who are not in front of the camera, but behind the scenes, because there's so many young brothers and young sisters that they think their only way out of poverty is through being in front of a camera or bouncing a basketball or saying a rap. So when I hear stories like yourself, success stories like yourself, I have to bring you and share you with our audience. So again, thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's a Let's whole other right world behind the camera. I'm there's sorry? A, there's, a whole lot, there's a whole lot going on behind the camera. You Absolutely. Know, there's a lot of things that we could be involved in. There's a lot of places that need, need our, our talents. And um, there's a lot of voids to fill where, where there's money to be had, you know, and there's businesses to be created. It doesn't always have to be in, you know, in front of the camera, like you said. That's so right. That's so right. Let's start from the beginning. All right. You're from the Bay Area, correct? Yep. Born and raised uh, Oakland, California. Nice, nice. What was your upbringing like? Um, I had a little bit of a, a mixed upbringing, so I... Uh, I was, you know, born in, in East Oakland and my uh, father, um, my father was out of my life by the time I was five. And okay. my father was actually an incredibly intelligent um, and educated man. He was a lawyer, um, but he got sucked into some bad stuff um, and drugs were involved and he was out of my life by the time I was five. Um, my mother, permanently, permanently. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I maybe saw him. I saw him once when I was uh, maybe sixteen, um, and then that's it. And then, and then he passed away when I was twenty-four. Oh wow! So, uh, so he was. Yeah, so he was basically. I didn't really have a relationship with him um, since I was five. Now, my my mother, um. You know, during that time, she was going through through medical school, and she actually became a doctor. And um, you know, when they divorced and split, you know, there was a lot of money issues. We bounced around. We lived in different, you know, different different houses. We lived with friends, um, and we ended up moving into 
my mom wanted to get us into a good uh, school zone, right? Mm -hmm. Zip code. Um, so we can go to one of the better public schools in Oakland. And so we ended up moving into the Oakland Hills and living with these three Ethiopian women. So we like all got together in a house and shared this house with these three Ethiopian women so that we could be in the, in the good school, uh, school uh, district. Uh -huh. um, so anyway, um, and so I, I say that to say that like I was fortunate that uh, my mom found ways to get me exposed to other ways of life and, and other things, right? And so anyway, I came up, um, you know, in Oakland. Um, I went to Skyline High School. You know, I was sort of um, typical teenager, you know, getting in a lot of trouble and, um, you know, had father issues and, and all that stuff. And I was running around Oakland doing, uh, you know, mischief, let's just say. And, and a teenager. Uh, yeah. And um, I ended up going to, um, I ended up going to Hampton University for college. Okay, HBCU. Why go from the West Coast to the, um, to the East Coast? Why was going to an HBCU so important to you? I'm be 100% honest with you. Uh -huh. I wasn't even planning on going to college. But my best friend at the time, his his parents were super strict and he was very he was like really he always knew what he wanted to do when he grew up and everything and he went on a black college tour and he came back and he was like look it's hella girls at hampton <laughs> and he was like I, and i was like well shit then we're going to hampton let's go and that that like that was my that was my energy at the time like i i, I had no plan but i was just with whatever the action was can, can we stop there for one second? Yeah. Your dad's yeah. a lawyer. Even though he's not in your life, obviously he's an yeah. educated man. Your mom's yeah. in the medical field. She becomes a doctor. Yeah. So yeah. I have to assume that, number one, education was big in your household. Is that correct? I, you know, your mom moved you to this really good school district, so she's looking out for your future. So I will put it like this. Um... So my mom is, she was very hippie, right? We're talking like Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco, fight the power, hippie type of, you know, new age. And her style of raising me was very much, um, you do what you want to do. You are who you are. And she didn't push things on me like that. And just to give you another sense of that, like my last name, Emira, it's not my mom or my dad's last name. They, really? made, up, they made up my last name out of a combination of both of their heritages. My dad took an African word. My mom took a, a Russian word and they put it together and made my last name. Um, because they wanted me to be my own person. And my dad didn't want to give me the slave name. Um, but that's the sort of like... Your dad's African-American and your mom is yeah. Russian, correct? She's Russian, yeah. Russian-Jewish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so she, you know, so they, they wanted me to just be my own entity. And, um, and so anyway, that's just the sort of like energy 
that was carried in in my in my upbringing. It wasn't like you're gonna go to college and you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that and you need like I didn't have that. It was very much a like, what do you want to do? And whatever you want to do, you you live and you die with those consequences. But I'll support you, whatever it is that you choose to do. And so I didn't have like a lot of pressure to make those decisions in high school. Um, and so I was really just about adventure. What's that? No, I said I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I didn't have those that type of pressure to make those decisions the way a lot of people a lot of people did. So. Um, I was really just about adventure and I, I really just wanted to be wherever the action was. That was just sort of my, my vibe. So I was chasing fun and I was chasing, I was chasing trouble and I was chasing activity and action. And so, um, you know, my best friend was like going to Hampton and there's action. So I was like, yo, let's go. Let's get out of here. And that's how I ended up in Hampton. I wish I could say that I was like, you know, I want to support and be part of the, you know, do, HBCUs and all that, but that really was not how how I was thinking. I, I didn't have a sophisticated way of thinking at that time, you know. Gotcha. So, yeah. What'd you major in? So um, I ended up majoring in sociology, um, and I I picked that after my first year. Those were the classes that I just loved. Like I was fascinated by why people do what they do, like why groups of people do what they do. And to me, that was about, that was really like, if I understand why groups of people do what they do, I can figure out anything. Because everything is just about groups of people getting together and doing things. That's what everything is made out of. And so that's what like, that's what, what fascinated me. And I ended up being a um, sociology major. Um, and one of the things that really changed my trajectory and changed my, my life was during college, I, um, I found the uh, International Studies Department at Hampton. And um, I ended up, you know, basically creating a, like a mentor out of the, the women who ran that department. Uh, there was hardly any other students were coming in there looking for opportunities. And I was in there again, looking for action, looking for adventure. And she was like, you could go to Japan for a semester. And so in my sophomore year of college, I, I went to Japan and I studied out there for, for six months. And then so that really- as early as your sophomore year, you were studying abroad? Yeah, 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 yeah. My first semester of sophomore year, I was out of there. Nice. I just wanted to, I just wanted to like, I, and I've always been like that. Like, I always want to see what's over there. I want to see what's on the other side of that fence. I want to go see what's out there. That was, that's always been my drive. And so, um, yeah, I was, so I was like 19 years old. I ended up and I'm, I landed in Tokyo and, and then I was running around Tokyo for, for six months. Um, and, uh, and, you know, funny enough, uh, there was a there was a, a girl in that same program who had come from Spelman was on that same program. Mm -hmm. And fast forward, whatever, 15 years later, like she was the first person to write a check to Maven and invest in Maven. 
No way. Oh God. Yeah. No yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. I met her in um in Tokyo when we were 19 years old. We were just running around, kids, crazy, um, just exploring the world. And it was dope. It was dope. That's incredible. That she she didn't live out west, did she? No, she went to Spelman. She went to and Spelman, but where she actually lived. Did you just keep in contact with her after college? No, we just kept in contact. Okay, got gotcha. you. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and I've studied abroad a couple times now and um, and went abroad. And, you know, the thing about when you, when you go abroad and you're with another, like some other people who are also studying abroad, y'all have an experience together that, nobody else can relate to like it's just the craziest shit that happens to you know when you're 20 years old and you're running around tokyo and and korea and seoul korea and thailand and shit like that like it, it, it creates a bond that just lasts a really long time um and so we just we always just stayed in touch she went on to do like crazy amazing things she speaks like spanish um Japanese, I think some German or something like that, big international affairs, um, politics stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I made some amazing friends and connections through Japanese. Now, that's great. Now, I know, and hold your thought on her for a second, because I'm going to come yeah. back, because I want to talk about your early investors. I, mm -hmm. I, I had no idea that, you know, your first investor would be somebody who you studied abroad with. So this is yeah. Good, yeah. good information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you go on, you do an MBA. Is that, did you go directly after graduating undergrad? No. So after undergrad, and I, and I studied abroad again during undergrad for a summer. I went Arrest. to Spain. In Spain? And I went to Spain, kicked it in this beach town, studied Spanish for a summer. Um, after college, that same mentor, um, I was telling her, um, I want to travel some more and I don't really want to go jump into some, into a, like a job. I think I'm more want to start a business or something. And uh, she was like, you could go to China. I hear there's a lot of stuff popping off in China. And this is like, you know, this is like 2003, 2004. And this is like really when China was just starting to like bubble. Um, and so I ended up going to China and teaching English over there. Okay. And so you, I would teach English for like four hours out the day. Um, and then I was just, I was just in China. And so I did that for a year. And China is really when my hustle was just completely ignited, right? So um, I had always been sort of a, you know, like I always had like a hustle going for something. Um, but when I got to China, I was just surrounded by um, opportunity and, and everybody in China is a hustler. Like everybody in China got something for sale. Paint the picture and, for me, give me an idea. Okay, well, look, like, China is where everything is, is made, right? It's, it's the factory and the wholesale depot for the entire world, 
right? So you get there and everybody has something for sale. I mean, anything you could possibly think of, light bulbs, uh, toothpicks, plastic baggies, toothbrushes, you know, furniture, you know, like everything that's in your house, there's a factory in China that may, that, that makes the shit. Correct. And so, um, you know, and so I get out there and everyone that works there is, is um, everyone around you is somehow connected to international trade. And so I just start seeing stuff for sale that's cheap. And so one of the first things that I got, I got drawn to was uh, I had some friends out there. I had found this small group of other like, like black dudes out there. A couple of them were like military or whatever. And they were buying uh, Jordans mm-hmm. and sending them back home. And I was like, Jordans? Because I know a lot of people want some Jordans. <laughs> and so. Hold on, were these real Jordans or bootleg Jordans? What you think? <laughs> <laughs> What you think, man? What you think, right? So I got on that, and and you know I hit the guys back home, and I was like, "Yo, I'm about to just start sending y'all all these J's, and y'all move on, send me the money." And that was how I got started in understanding international trade, and I had to understand how to go to different factories. I had to understand how to ship stuff. I had to learn about customs. I had to learn about moving money, uh, you know, cross-border. Um, I, I learned a lot of Chinese doing it. Um, and, um, and then that just, like, as that grew, you know, I wanted more, and I wanted to do something that was, you know, a little bit, you know, more legitimate. And, you know, I wanted to do – I started seeing a vision of something much bigger. Um, How long were you in China? Uh, I was in China for about a year and a half. So within a year and a half, you go down there, you're teaching. Four hours a day, you're teaching. During your off time, some of your friends, they have a small time hustle sending Jays back to the States. And this is what ignited, whoa, I am literally in a place that makes everything. I'm, I was, I was sitting, I was at the, I was the plug. I was there like, you oh, go. Shit, this you go. is the plug. I'm sitting at, at the middle of the source of everything. Right. And so I just got juiced and that, that just like lit me up. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be the plug. And, uh, I started with the Jays and I ended up after like a year and a half, I moved back to to the states. I actually moved to Miami for a while, and um, you know, and I would I would go back and forth every now and then back to California or whatever, and I would always bring some J's with me. I would just have a suitcase. I would put them in the trunk, and I would just pull up to the barber shop or I'd pull up to the gas station, and I would sell sell sneakers. Um, and uh, but I had been like stacking bread to go bigger and I ended up getting into furniture and then I started moving like these containers of furniture and art back to Miami 
and I got a warehouse and I started uh, putting ads online on Craigslist and I, and I got a condo in Miami that was literally, it was like a showroom, but I lived in it. It was like a showroom for furniture, but I lived in it. And I, and I, I would put the couches together and sleep on them at night. And then I would wake up, separate it all out, and I would have people coming through looking at the looking at the furniture. And then I had a warehouse where we would go get it delivered from. And I would just take just take cash, you know, on the spot. So um, and I just did that. I was just, you know, I was still just kind of hustling. Um, you know, stacking flip. Your bills at the time, or do you have a day job? No, I never had a day job. So this, this, all, this yeah. hustle is actually paying your bills. Yeah, I mean, I was making, I like, I mean, the furniture. I mean, I, I was making six figures from shoes, and then, you know, multiple six figures from furniture. Like I would just, I was getting, you know, containers of furniture that I would import, and I had an entire warehouse, and I just sold stuff like cash, just off Craigslist and I still at that point really didn't have like a sophisticated enough vision. Mm -hmm. Like I, the way I look at it now is I would, you know, there's, um, there's hustling and then there's business and business is, is, you know, when you cross that threshold from hustling to business, there's more of a plan there's more of a long range goal. There's more of a structure to it. Um, and I was still in that mode. And I'm like, I was like 24 years old and just like spending all my money in Miami and just having fun. Um, but that's when I started to really, you know, I started to understand um, that there was a lot that I did not understand, mm -hmm. right? And so I had, I had started to meet people who, had real businesses and, you know, they were multi-millionaires and, and had, um, had corporations. And I remember I, I was sitting at a, um, I was sitting at Bayside in Miami with one of my friends and he, he was a currency trader and he was asking me about my stuff and in international trade. He was really fascinated. And I was saying, yo, like trade, makes the world go round. Goods make the world go round. And he said, he said, yeah, he said, but nah, you know who really makes the world go round? And he just pointed up and I looked up and it was a Bank of America building. And I really had an epiphany at that moment that I don't, that's where the money moves. And I want to know who's in that building and I want to know what they're talking about mm -hmm. at the top. I want to know the business of money, not just the products and the goods. Um, and that really changed my mindset and made me start thinking like, okay, I want to go back to, I want to go get an MBA because I want to know who's in that room and I want to know what they're talking about. So it was that moment that changed your mindset completely. It really was. I'm making I mean, money well, on the street. I'm hustling. But there's yeah. a big difference between hustling and yeah. business. Yeah. 
And if I'm ever going to graduate, if I'm ever going to yeah. become a true businessman, yeah, I need to find out with these guys on that top floor what their yeah. discussions look like, what to do, what's happening in those conversations. I mean, every level that that you can graduate to is just a is just a function of what room can you get into. That's it. You know, that's it. Because, you know, business is business at all levels. It's just a different, it's just configured differently. It's a different conversation, depending on the type of room that you're in. It's all the same fundamentals, but different games just have more zeros attached to them. There you go. You know, and so in in one room, there's a room where people are talking about $50,000 plays. And there's another room where people are talking about $50 million plays. And there's another room where people are talking about $50 billion plays. And they're basically all the same, but each one is just a different, it's just a different game. So from that, from that perspective, I looked at getting an MBA as a, a chance and an opportunity to meet people who can get me into rooms like that and understand what the conversation was that they were having so that I could figure out how to, how to get in that myself. Dope. You go back to school, you take your MBA. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went to Georgia State uh, University for an MBA. It was a, um, an accelerated MBA program. So I didn't want to go spend a full two years mm -hmm. out of the game. So I got, I did a program that was um, an intensive. So you, you're in class like all day, every day, but it's only for 14 months. And it was like international. So we did like three months in Brazil, three months in Paris, two months in China. And then I did an internship. Um, I finished that with an internship in, in, uh, in Ethiopia, in Addis. Um, at Ernst and Young, and um, and so I was in and out of there in 14 months. Um, while I was in there, I was like networking and trying to. I was trying to meet venture capitalists. So I had sort of, I had sort of honed in on Silicon Valley while I was in business school. Um, uh, for two reasons. One, I really started to understand that like this is Silicon Valley is the epicenter of like what's moving the world right now. And then two, I was like, I, I was like, wait, so over there in Silicon Valley, 30 minutes from where I live, they're, they're giving out 10, 10, $20 million bags to kids to start companies. And I was like, oh hell, like I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting some of that. Right. <laughs> and so that, that started to kind of become my, my focus. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I graduated, um, I just moved back to the vet. And my goal was like, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna build a company on the internet and I'm gonna do it with venture funded and I'm gonna do something at scale. I'm gonna play, I'm gonna play, I wanna play a nine figure game. I, I, I don't wanna, I'm done playing a five figure game, six figure game, I wanna play a nine figure game. So this and, is your mentality at that point in your life. Yeah. So yeah. this was very intentional. It is no accident that you built a business that you no. scale up. No. How old, are you, I, how old are you around? No. 
What's that? How old are you around this time? Um, 27. 27. Um, Very inspiring. And, and, and honestly, like, by Silicon Valley standards, like, you know, I was, um, you know, I was probably older than most of the, like, the, like, kids starting companies in Silicon Valley these days are, like, 22 years old, 23 years old. I didn't know Silicon Valley really was, the, that's where, where it was until I was 27, 28. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get Maven going until I was, like, 30. You know, 31, which actually out here is old. <laughs> That's actually so old. Silicon Valley standards, you were old walking in. I the was old head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I came very, very intentional. When I got back from B school, though, I didn't know what the thing was going to be. But I did know I did not want to jump into a, um, into a job. And, and I actually tell a lot of entrepreneurs this, that there was a two-year period between when I got back from getting my MBA to when I got, let's say, in the game, which, which meant like I got into this accelerator, this, um, this accelerator called 500 We're going to get to that. Right. And where... That two-year period, I'm actually the most proud of. Why is it? Because, <clears throat> because that was probably the, the most mentally hard space to be in. So um, I'm 28, 29 years old, 30, you know, about to be 30, graduate from, I have an MBA, I speak Chinese. My, co my classmates are going and they're taking like six figure jobs at like, you know, consulting firms and, and shit like that. And I had the decision like, okay, I know I want to start a business, but if I go get a job right now, it's just going to suck my brain juice out. Like it'll suck my life force out and I won't have time to explore, experiment, and, and, and figure the angles out to get something going. And so I chose to instead move back into my mom's house. I got a job valeting cars at night. And then I just worked on trying to figure out the game during the day. And so now I'm, I'm like 30 and I'm moving to my mom's house and I got an MBA and my classmates are laughing at me and and my mom is even looking at me like, yo, what are you, what's, what you, what you doing? You know, she's looking at me. Everyone's kind of looking at me crazy. Um, and I just, I just stayed on it. And I just got into a zone where like, I didn't care what anybody else thought. And if I had to be, you know, humiliated for two years in, you know, in, um, you know, in pursuit of something that I knew I could do, then I would just, I would eat that. And no, um, can we, can we take a second here? Because there's an entrepreneur right now. There's somebody out there right now that wants to excel. Somebody wants to go to the next level in their life, but you just touched on such an incredible gem. Something that I always preach on. Sometimes you have to humble yourself. Yeah. 
And you have to take what by outward appearances would seem like a step back. Yeah. But in that step back, it allows you to figure out your plan so that you can take this giant leap forward. But it does require humility. And it does require blocking out all of that noise and getting out of your own head. Because like you said, you're an NBA now. Your friends, they're going and they're getting six-figure jobs. Here you are, a person who has made six figures. Yeah, yeah. Move back in your mom's house. She's looking at you like you're nuts. Everybody you went to school is looking at you like you're nuts. You're balleting cars. Yeah, yeah. But I love the fact that you are being so upfront and honest about the process because sometimes it just takes, let me dumb it all the way down, clear up some brain real estate and figure it out. Yeah. And I I made that point because, and I I make a point of saying like, I'm, I'm really the most proud of those two years because that's where I see a lot of people get stuck. That's where I see a lot of people make that left turn instead of going right. And they had a dream or they had a thing and they just couldn't take the external pressure, the expectations, the narratives, their friends, their family. They can't, they couldn't take that. And they went, and then they went left. And, but I, through that process, I learned so much about, about the game, just from that one, from those two years of going through that and then seeing the, the breakthrough on the other side, I've, I felt invincible. I felt invincible. Like, once you break free of thinking about what other people think, mm-hmm. you become, you're invincible. Like, that is the thing that drags, like, 90% of the people down. You know, and like people are not, people are not really afraid to fail. People are afraid to be seen failing. Please say that one more time. Yeah, people are not afraid to fail. They're afraid to be seen failing. So true, so powerful. And that's, that, that, that outside influence is so powerful and people need to, you know, people need to acknowledge that that influence is affecting their decision making. Like every time you think about I should do this or I'm going to do that, there's a thought that goes through your head about one of your friends or somebody in your family and like what they would think or what they would say about that. That is all external chitter chatter that doesn't have anything to do with you. And it's only going to pull you back. So, um, Anyway, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Let's talk about the start of Maven. Where'd you get the idea? And then I want to go into where'd you get the funding? So, um, so I had been playing around with different ideas um, when I got back from B school. Um, And this one sort of came out of left field where someone in my family who was a hairstylist asked me if I could get some hair extensions from China for her. And, 
so I was like, all right. And at that time, that's the guy I was. Like everybody that knew me would just always be called me, asking me, what could I get from China? Right, I was the plug. So I, I hooked her up, I got some samples, I brought her back, she was like, that's dope. And I brought some of those samples to some other salons and they were all just like, yo, can you give me some more? And like literally I was just like pulling up to the salon and I'll just like walk in with like two bundles in my hand and feel like I got hair. And then they would just like rush me, you know, at you know, at the, at the door. And, and really it started because I was in this mindset where, mindset where I'm trying to figure out what business to start. I need, I need to have some income, some basic level of income, but I need to get it in a way that doesn't take up all my time. Mm-hmm. And so then when people started asking me for hair, I was like, oh, well, this is easy because I can make like a, and five, four, five hundred dollars a day. Just, just pull up to a couple salons and just get it off real quick. And so I ended up just doing that and putting bundles in the trunk and just driving around, spend like two hours driving to the salons, get out, hop out, sell some hair, and then I was free for the day and I could work on stuff. And the more I started doing that with this new framework now from like I had went to B school and I'm seeing things now from a much bigger top-down perspective, I started to see something way bigger. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of people uh, describe Maven as a hair extension business. And that is never what I ever intended Maven to be or the way that I thought about it. Hair extensions are not the focus of the business, even though we sell hair extensions, right? Outside so, looking in, yeah, I, know. I look at it yeah. as a distribution network. Yeah. It, 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 so I don't know where yeah. you're going, but I, I can just tell you, yes, I've heard it described as a hair extension business, but yeah. what you have built feels more like an incredible distribution, distribution yeah. network. Yeah. yeah, and that was what I came to solve. What I saw was, there's $6 billion of these products being consumed by us. They don't sell it in the hair salon where the stylists are doing the hair every single day. It's sold across the street at the Korean beauty supply store. The customer goes and buys it herself, brings it over here. Stylist doesn't make any money from the product. But you just one better, one better before you go. Yeah. Not only does the stylist not make money from the product, but they're referring. They're referring. They're telling what to get when you go. And so I just see this middleman sitting here and they buy the hair from China. They're Korean, but they buy it from China. So I'm like, I could get it from China and she should be the one who's selling it. Cause she's already got all the customers. I love this. So Ooh. what I saw was a distribution problem, not a hair extension problem. And for me, if I could move, hair extensions would be the cornerstone product that we would build this thing on. But once the channel is built, we can move any type of products. And we can move hair care products and tools and, and, and all these other things. And so that's what I saw and that's also why it was a technology business. It was about building distribution. It was about building a platform and a network that could be leveraged 
to build businesses on, on top of. And so that was the, that's what I saw. And so yeah. you're seeing this. And again, yeah. I want to walk through this slowly mm. because I, 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 your company is wildly successful. Do you get this vision from the street level? You're still going hand to hand, door to door, dealing with the stylists, or is it over a certain period of time that you come to understand this is much bigger? This is this is not just, I get it, it's not just here, it's more of a distribution, but this is nationwide, global. Um, no, I got it, I, I knew it at the street level. Right now, remember, now remember, like, I had just spent the, the, like, the previous eight years doing international and global business. It was like, it was hustle level, but I saw these things and I saw like big systems. And then I went to business school and I was looking at systems. I was looking at systems and corporations and networks and understanding network effects and SWOT analysis and, you know, like uh, much more sophisticated ways to look at the big picture. So, and that's what like, you know, when I did an MBA, it's more, how do you think big picture? And so it was reversed. I got that sort of like mind frame. And then I went down to the street level and I saw what's happening at the street level and said, this just doesn't make any sense. This system is broken. This, this system can be fixed. And I understood the size of, of, the, of the problem, right? Because I understood that it was like $6 billion of hair extensions alone, $10 billion of just black hair products. And the same model could be applied outside the African-American community. There's no reason it would just have to be. So, Correct. right. So, so that's what I saw. And so that's what sparked, okay, this is something that has the scale size and is perfect for me to do, which is a really, really important part of my decision to go down this, this path, which is that, um, a lot of people, I think they look for opportunities outside of themselves. So they're like, where's a hole that needs to be filled? But you have to match that hole, right? So like, it's almost like the hole is like a puzzle piece uh, or an empty puzzle piece space. And you have to fit into that. So this business is half supply chain. It's dealing with China, it's import export. These are things that I understood. These are things that I had experience with. So I had an advantage there. And so that's why I chose, like that's why I also, um, that's why I decided to like, just go hard into it. So Before you go further, got a question for you. Yeah. You 100% had the skill set, the experience, the background to get this business off the ground. In your words, yes, there's an opportunity there, but your experience fit. 
Yeah. Did love, passion, any of that stuff fit into your decision making? Were you loving what you were doing at this point? Or was this strictly opportunity that I'm tailor made for? It was love and passion were definitely part of it. So first of all, I get passion from like the way I think about it is like, I, I like, I like puzzles. I like, these are games to me. I like untying knots. I like figuring out, you know, stuff like I'm passionate about that. And then business is all about that now. And I'm also, a, I'm about like making money. I like to make money. Right. That I, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, at the same time, I grew up in a family that was very, like I said, hippie, social justice oriented. You know, my mom's friends were like ex Black Panthers and they would be like Black Panthers at the, at the you know, Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, we would be at ashrams and we would go to, the, you know, multicultural um, you know, anti-oppressor rallies and stuff like that. You know, this is Bay Area culture, right? Like counterculture stuff in the, you know. So I always also grew up with like a sense of, of um, a sense of like fight for our culture, right? And, um, and independence, right? Um, and so when I came across this as an opportunity, what I saw was the Koreans are eating off of us and not giving anything back. The stylists in the black community are, they have all of this un, un, um, all of this potential energy and, and un, uh, locked up potential because they've got all these customers. They're experts at what they do. People do what they tell them to do. The customers do what they tell them to do. They just don't have the tools to unlock that, that potential. And if I build this, there is an opportunity to both make a big ass business that can make a lot of money and to transfer a whole bunch of money into the black community. And so those two things together was like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Fuck it. That's what I'm doing. That's the best of both worlds, you know? Um, and so, um, yeah. And so that just lit me up. Yeah. And then, and then I was right for that business. I had the skill set and I had the experience and the background to be one of the only people that could do that. That's true. And, and I was about to go there, so I'm glad you yeah. said that. You, yeah. technically, in this space, yeah. you're one of the only people who were positioned yeah. to do it. Yeah. You had experience in import-export. You yeah. had, obviously, you yeah. understand the African-American community. Exactly. Incredible. Exactly. Yeah, in fact, I, uh, I had a... Uh, Go, go, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say on that same point, you know, like uh, Steve Stout invested in Maven early on. And um, I remember like 
pitching it to him and uh, I was telling him what we were doing. We had kind of already got things rolling and um, he was like, wait, 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 why isn't anybody doing this already? And I said, who's going to do it? And he was just like, okay, meet me tomorrow morning <laughs> at the battery. Let's, let's, let's dig in. Uh, and that really was a big part of it. Like, the, 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 the intersection of all the different skill sets you would need to pull this off is just a rare set of traits. And I had those. And so when you also, when you have an advantage at something, you got to, you double down, you go hard, you press an advantage. And, um, and I did know that at the time I was like, okay. And so I just, I just, and I started pushing on that. Okay, talk to me now about funding, early funding, and then I want to work my way into Silicon Valley. Okay, so when I started coming up with that idea, I, was, I had called Kali and I had told her, and she was like, D, you got to do that. If you do that, I'll, I'll, I'll invest. I got 10K for you. I was like, oh, shit, okay. Black um, woman. Black woman. First investor. First investor in Maven. Black woman. There you go. Um, and then she tells her friend, who was like one of her best friends, and I know her as well, and then she pops up and she's like, yo, if Kylie's doing it, I want to do it. I want in. I want in. And I was like, all right, cool. Wait till I get uh, like a real VC in. And then you guys just kind of kind of like, I don't want to like take the money and I don't have the rest of it. Right. Um, you know, cause when you take money from friends, you're trying to be extra careful, right? You're like more nervous. Right. So I end up finding this other guy who a VC who tells me, all right, if you go raise $40,000, I'll match you. And uh, so then I go back to Kali and I'm like, yo, I got to do, all I got to do is pull together like 40. They put up their 20. Um, another black guy, like, not entrepreneur, uh, he was an engineer at uh, Zynga that I had met during this time. And during this time, I'm just like running around, going to as many tech events as I can, trying to learn, you know, the language and, and try to understand how to pitch and he ends up saying he wants to give me 15 grand and he's about to do it. But then the Zynga IPO gets fucked up and he's like, fuck, I can't do it. But then he calls me the next day and he's like, I told my mom about your company and she wants to give you 15 grand. I've never even met her. But these are all like black women that when they were presented with this said, we need this. We need this in our community. We're tired, we're tired of giving all the money to somebody else. We need it in our community. And they put the money up. And they put the money up. Um, and then one other dude that I had met, another brother who uh, was out here, introduced me to some, this, this white dude named Adam Glickman out of, out of Fud Ruckers, and Adam was like, 
this is cool. I'll give you 20 grand. And that was how we got, um, I think it was 48, the first $48,000. So then I go back to the dude, the VC. And I'm like, yo, I got the money. And then he's like, well, tell me about your numbers some more. I'm like, wait, what? That's not, like, why are you asking me? You, you said if I get the bag, you're going you're gonna to match it, whatever. And he's like, uh, okay. You know, so basically he tries to pull out. And I'm like, yo, you can't pull out because I just told everybody. And, he, and he's like, okay, fine. Well, I'll send you $3,000. And then he never sends the $3,000. He just never sends it. And I go back to everybody. and I'm like, yo, I thought this guy was going to come. And, but he didn't. And everybody was just like, take the money and go. Just run it. And that was 48 grand that, um, that got us started. And I bought some inventory and, um, you know, built, the, built out the first website and little MVP prototype um, and was started to move product. And then during that time, I was going to pitch events and I would pitch. And I, I, was, I was really good at pitching. But all the panelists afterwards would say, like, I would win the pitch event, but then the panelists would be like, this is amazing, sounds amazing, um, but I don't know anything about black women or hair or anything, so, like, I can't invest. And that was happening over and over again, but eventually one of those panelists said, let me introduce you to this guy who runs this accelerator called 500 Startups. Um, and an accelerator is where they'll take like a company with an idea. They'll give you like 50 K and some office space and they'll help you introduce you to investors and help you work on your pitch and help you with the product and basically try to accelerate you to, to getting funded. And so by the time we got into that, there was $6,000 left of the 48,000. So, um, we get into this accelerator program, and I should mention that by this time, I had, I had uh, also added a co-founder to my business who was um, a, a, a dude, his name is Taylor, Taylor Wang. Mm -hmm. I had met him when I was in China doing shoes. He was from, he's, he was born and raised in Berkeley. He went to UC Davis. He's a sneakerhead, and he would be, selling he sold sneakers online in like you know he sold like the real ones like he was like a real sneakerhead and he was in these you know online forums where they traded uh rare release shoes and someone had connected us when i was in china and he was trying to find rare release sneakers and i would jump over to hong kong or i would jump over to tokyo and i would find shoes that had only come out over there and I would give, and I would work with him to move them online. And so that's how we met. And we had like a little side shoe business um, with the the rare release shoes and vapes and and all that kind of stuff. Right? When that what was did high. he bring to the table that you needed? That you said, let me bring you in as a co as a co partner. So Taylor was a computer guy. He's a computer guy. I was not a computer guy, right? Uh, yeah, like, so Taylor had, Taylor had been selling, meaning Taylor had been selling things online, right? He knew how to build websites. He knew how to, you know, like, 
he had been in that world and um, and he had just uh, when we reconnected, he had just built an e-commerce business that he sold to a guilt group. Um, it was sort of like a Groupon type of business. Mm-hmm. When the Groupon was hot and all that, it was all these other little businesses that popped up like Groupon. He had one of them and they got rolled up and they bought that. And so he was fresh off of that. And when we linked back up and I told him what I was doing, he just started helping me just build the website. And so I was like, yo, let's just do this thing. Like you the other half, you know, like you the technical side. And um, so anyway, Taylor and I end up getting accepted to 500 startups. We get in, like I said, it was $6,000 left of the, the money that I raised before. They gave us another 50K. You raised, because I know you and I spoke offline, so I want to make sure that, that, that we get it in, in this conversation. You raised $48,000 to begin with, yeah. all given to you by friends and family. Uh, friends. Friends. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and all of color. These are African-Americans who believed in a young black brother doing his thing. They saw your vision, but more importantly, they understood that you were a man of integrity and they wanted to invest in you and your dream. In addition yeah. to the idea itself. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, 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 and I mean, I think, you know, the common thread was like, I mean, I think, you know, we had known each other for a long time and we had that sort of, um, you know, they had that, I had credibility with people, but also this was something that they just wanted to see come into the world. This was something that black people, we've, we've been tired of this for a very long time, which is the, the Korean store is selling all of our shit and we're not, we don't, we don't make any money from it. And it's not in the, in the store, the Korean store is not a very nice, friendly, inviting Right, they're, they're not, you know, and I have no, um, it's not anything anti-Korean. In fact, I have a lot of respect for anybody who's an immigrant who's willing to come to another country into an environment and a neighborhood that a lot of Americans won't even go into and set up shop. I have a lot of respect for that. You know, like that's, that's true hustler. You know, so, but at the same time, once you come in and you set up shop, if you don't integrate with the community, there's going to be, there's going to be static. Correct. There's going to be static. And so, um, this was not about me saying, take anything from them. It was about, I want to give something to my people. Um, I want us to be involved. I want us to have, to be part of this supply chain and part of the value chain. And so anyway, um, we got into 500 startups and um, this was like a Silicon Valley cohort of like 20 something companies in there that they let in. You're there for like three months. Uh, They'll help you put your pitch deck together um, and they'll introduce you to to investors. And How much funding did you receive? 50K to start. Uh-huh. And then by the end of it, I had raised another 850,000. So 50K to start. I'm, I'm trying to understand what this package looks like. 50K mm-hmm. to start. 
how much of your business you have to give up? 5%. 50K, 5%. But the true gem was they introduced you to other investors. Yeah, I mean, they probably accelerated me by two years. I mean, you come in there and they're like, make a list of 100 investors that you want to talk to. Bring it to us and we will make all the, and we'll just make intros. Boom, 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 boom. And these are people like, it would have taken me years to try and meet all these people. I, I didn't know anybody to introduce me to any of these people. Right? So get you in the door. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you are in these pitch competitions. So right yeah. about now, I'm assuming you're ready for these meetings. You have your yeah. pitch down pat. And just, you know, I wanna, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. You're an MBA. Yeah. I got to believe MBA, they, they, they focus on these elaborate business plans. <laughs> it, you know, did that help you? Or now that you're pitching to venture capitalists, investors, yeah. are they looking for something more dumbed down? Like, what does that look like for you? Super dumbed down. I had to unlearn my MBA shit to know how to talk in Silicon Valley. So um, in Silicon Valley, it's like, you know, a 10 slide deck with as few words as possible, more charts. And it's just about telling a story about a market a huge market that exists, um, a customer who is dying for this problem that they have to be solved, and a clever way for you to solve that problem. That's it. And then, and then, and then why are you the one to do it? Why are you gonna win? So this is about storytelling, right? And which makes sense because early stage investment, there's not a lot to go on, right? There's not big models to build and financial spreadsheets to analyze cash flows and discount cash flows and all of this stuff, balance sheets and shit. It's an idea. And maybe you have a little bit of traction. Like when we were in 500 startups, we had maybe like seven, $8,000 a month in, in sales. It wasn't like, rocking through the that wasn't going crazy but but it was going up each month a little bit right and so um you're just telling that story and they're investing more in the potential and size of this market size of this problem than necessarily exactly what the business looks like today because they expect to change over time anyway mm -hmm. right so they sort of discount all these very fancy models and business plans because they're sort of like, none of that, it's not going to go that way anyway. Like, it's not going to turn out that way anyway. So we just want to know the opportunity is real. You're a great entrepreneur. You have a real customer who's in dire need of this, this thing. And you've got the grit and tenacity to just stick with it and build the thing out. So did I hear you correctly that you said you start out with this 50K investment from 500 startups 
And by the time you were out of the program, you raised an additional eight, 800,000? Yeah, 850. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so, here's what I want you to tell me. And, yeah. you, and maybe you just answered this. Mm -hmm. But I got to believe now you're working your way into Silicon Valley. Yeah. Less than 1% of black and, my own, and minority owned businesses get funded. Yeah. How do you translate this business? Because they don't understand what weave and black hair means within our community. So you yeah, had to be going in there and selling them. I'm sure if you had yeah. gone in there and talked about video games and anything, computer apps or, or, or mobile apps, they get yeah. that. Yeah. How did you get them to understand this? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, was, that was the hurdle. Um, and then it also became the opportunity. And so um, anyway, you know, a lot of these investors, zero, zero contact with black people. Like, not even contact. Like, what's a hair extension? And then I tell them what a hair extension is. And they're like, you mean like, when I see black women, like that's not their hair? <laughs> <laughs> like, like zero clue. All right. And um, so I'm starting from zero in trying to educate people. And what that meant, though, was that when you started from zero, you get two types of people. Either the type of person who's like, get the fuck out of here. I have no desire to start from zero and get into something that I have no idea about. Or you get people, and it's a lot less people, but you get them who are like, I'm looking for something that nobody else knows about. I'm looking for something crazy. I'm looking for something that not 10 other companies in this batch are going to try to do. And so um, I focused on those type of people. And I weeded out really quickly people who were just sort of like, eh, man, that just means they're not going to be in. So just push them to the side fast. Um, I ended up taking one, one, uh, one of these guys was, was interested and he was looking for things that were not the typical Silicon Valley play. And I took them on a field trip. I said, yo, you don't believe me? I'll show you. And I took them to West Oakland to the beauty supply warehouse. And like, we're in the middle of West Oakland. It's just like, you know, it's like homeless people walking around, and, you know, you know, and we go they're they're walking around, they're like looking behind them and they're all like, where the fuck are we? And I take them into this beauty supply warehouse and they get in there and they're like, where the fuck am I? Like hair on the wall, like every wall is covered <laughs> with hair. And they're like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, that's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you. There's an entire market, huge billions of dollar market that you don't even see is invisible to you. Um, but we all know it's there and we're part of it. 
every single day. And that became the story. And the story is about something that's hidden and something that only a few people know about. And that's how you, that was the, that was the essence of the story that gets people excited or, or there were people that were, had no, they, they had no desire. So, um, you know, I had a lot of obviously like, you know, uh, you know, because I'm black and people aren't used to like having black people pitch, you know, I got a lot of side eyes. I got a lot of dismissals and I got a lot of, you know, um, all the things they talk about when it comes to like black people raising money in Silicon Valley. Um, but to be honest with you, like I expected that I expected that, that type of static. And so I just didn't even think about, I didn't get caught up in that. I was just like, all right, what do I need to do to get it? Um, and so I separated out, you know, people really fast of like who wasn't even going to be an option to people who they were looking for something that was very, very different. And I made my story about being different. Less about hair extensions, about an entire culture and way of life that is multi-billions of dollars that nobody else knows about. And that became the story. That's insane. That's yeah. great. How many yeah. rounds of funding have you gone through? Mm. So there was, you know, 500 startups. We did that, 850. Um, the following year, so right when, right when we got out of 500 and we like, we did like a super launch. Mm -hmm it just started like taking off. It just started taking off. Like, um, like we did like 4 million in the first year. It was just like- People now calling you or investors now? Now they're calling me. Gotcha. Now they're calling me. Um, and um, <clears throat> so we're growing really fast. I'm adding employees. And um, I think in that first year, 2014, uh, two very small rounds, but I wanted to get a couple people in. Like, you know, Serena Williams came in that year. Um, Base Ventures, my guy, Eric Moore came in. Um, and then, you know, so I, I, I look at all that as like kind of part of the seed round. Um, so you could say like all together, there was about uh, 2 million raised in that first year. Then we did our series A in 2015 and that was a 10 million dollar round that was led by Andreessen Horowitz um and then um in 2018 did another 20 million dollar round uh, actually we had another bridge round in 2017 for about 7 million so all together we raised 41 million dollars i want to go backwards but i want to yeah. stay here for one second at what point do you look in the mirror and be like, damn, I, me, Deshaun, I started a business yeah. that others see such potential in that we raised 
41 million dollars. I haven't gotten to your revenues, any of that stuff. Yeah. But just to think that here you have some African American women that wanted to see this business come to life and they entrusted you with their hard-earned money. Yeah. $48,000 to now you have infiltrated Silicon Valley. Yeah. Several rounds of funding, $41 million. Like, do yeah. you pinch it? Like, is there a moment that you sit with your mother or, 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 or you're with your partner or you're by yourself and you're like, I did it? Yeah. I mean, I have those, um, I have those moments, you know what I mean, from time to time where I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I look at, I look at like Ted, I'm like, yo, that shit worked. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, it worked. You know, yo, this shit worked, <laughs> you know? Um, but honestly, I have way more moments where I'm like, we got to do more. There's just way more levels to get to where I'm just like, it's not enough. There's okay, too no, many no, no, more no, levels. No. I, I get it. This is, this is, I, I, I understand. I it. Let's take a step back because I don't yeah. want to get too far ahead of myself in this interview. Yeah. Yeah. On the streets, you get into 500 startups, you're making about $7,000 a month. Yeah. At what point did you start to see real momentum? At what point did you start to scale this thing and understand, okay, it's one thing to have this idea in my head and I know it can scale, to now you're seeing your network being built and it's incrementally climbing. Is this right away? Is it, is it over the, the first time it really, really hit us? So. After 500 startups, you know, maybe when we left 500 startups, we may be doing like, you know, 10 to 12 grand a month. And we, um, by, we, we figured out by that time how to get more stylists into the network. So <clears throat> this is actually a good story. Like, how we got like the first thousand hairstylists, we figured out that this is at the time when Two Chains had the song out where he said, Hair Weave Killer. And we, we figured out that if we went on onto Instagram and we searched the hashtag Hair Weave Killer, it was all hairstylists posting. And this is 2014. Instagram didn't have DMs at the time. All they had was comments. So we would just jump in the comments of any stylist who had posted with Hair Weave Killer. We'd say, do you want to make money selling hair? No inventory required. Free website. Just email us at um, maven.com. <clears throat> and we just started getting all these emails. And it was thousands, it was thousands. Everybody was posting hair weave killer. Wow. Everybody. And so then by like December, we I think it was like 40K a month in sales. And then 
what hit us that we didn't know until our first year was that <clears throat> this business goes ham in tax season. <laughs> so, so we weren't expecting this at like it came out of nowhere like out of nowhere and now we've learned that like we have this thing like down to the day now because there's literally like a direct deposit day for you know for income to, for uh their tax refunds or whatever and <clears throat> business tripled like it just tripled and stayed up there for like two and a half months. Woo! So then all of a sudden we do like 140K a month. It was like, what the fuck? Like I had to call my cousin to come help me bag hair. And they're, you know, like we're in this tiny office with just like piles of. Good. You know, I, like, I was about to go there. How many employees do you have at this moment? Maybe like seven. Okay. So you're still. A small business. Yeah, yeah. Very small business. Yeah. Are you are you national at this point, or are you local? National. But okay. once we started getting people off Instagram, you're they're all over the place. Okay, S stay with me for one second, because I want to make sure the audience understands your business model. You just yeah. alluded to it. You're working directly with the stylists. Yeah. You're building a website. For the yeah. stylists, no money out their pocket. Yeah. All they have to do is exactly what they've been doing. Yeah. They tell their clients, buy your hair from me. You take care of the back end. Yeah. They receive a purchase off the sale and everything stays in house. Yeah. Did I get that correct? The style, exactly. The stylist does not have to buy inventory from us. All they do is tell their client, buy from their website, which we made for them. Client buys it, Maven ships the product to the customer, and we pay the stylist a commission. Before we go further, because there's a lot, because you just opened up a whole door I want to get into. Was this, you know, I know our community. People, you know, they look at you kind of sideways. Did you get a lot of pushback or did the stylist immediately buy in? Um, well, here's what we did early on. I guaranteed everything. I said, if the customer doesn't like it, if they don't like the hair, you can wear the hair. If you don't like it, money back. I, I launched like that because I did know that the stylist, their biggest concern is, am I recommending something that's going to be a good product? Yep. And so by having the guarantee from the very, very beginning, we were able to get over that first hurdle of like those first set of people like, you know, who is this? What is this? Can I trust it? I don't know what the hair is like, et cetera, et cetera. And then once people started getting the hair and then they liked it, then everybody started getting more and more comfortable with the brand. And and, and then all the stylists knew all the other stylists were selling it. And they were like, okay, I'm getting on board. So, um, 
you know, sometimes you have to pay the upfront cost of, of earning people's trust and you have to be the one that steps out there first. Um, you know, but, but we still do that to this day. We guarantee everything. Um, and that, that was key to my business. I think like ethos from the very beginning was that like there, there, there isn't another product that people buy that caught like a consumer product that people buy that costs this much money, two, $300. And there's no type of warranty. There's no type of guarantee or protection on the product. But in our community, once you buy it from the Korean store, that's it. And I giving you your money back. You, you, you don't like, there's no consumer consideration. It's like, buy it, get the hell out of here, tell a friend. Like that's how they treat that's how they treated us, right? And I did not want it to be like that, right? I think like our community and our customers deserve a level of respect in this industry. Why, why, do, why are the places where we shop for beauty look like liquor stores? Why don't they look like Sephora? Why don't they look like Ulta? Why aren't they beautiful places that cater to you and give you what you you, you know what you came for and treat you like you're actually really the customer that doesn't exist and so I also wanted to bring respect and trust for my my customers at the same time and part of that trust was if I offer a guarantee people are not going to abuse it and they don't they don't abuse it and that's why we still do it to this day there's like an expectation that like our community is just going to instantly try and rip off or run away with whatever free shit they can get. It's not true. It's not true. You know, it's just like right now going on with all these protests and it's like people rioting and breaking windows and then you zoom in and you see who it is. It's, it's white dudes doing this shit. Right. But, but we're looked at as like, we're the ones who do this type of shit. It's not true. It's not true. We're for the most part great people just trying to live our lives and do shit the right way and get by and, and, and live life. So I wanted that sort of like energy and spirit to come through in the product you know, that, we, that we had. So we earned trust early on and then that spread. Um, so and then it started question, rocking. Was that? Question for you. Yeah. You said come around tax season, something you could not have predicted. It's just something you needed to live through to understand we get this yeah. spike. Yeah. You're in business for how long at this point? I mean, we had launched, we had like the real launch was in like October, August, or no, September of 2013. And so the spike comes in February. Of so fourteen, like of fourteen. So this is like five. So you had a lot going on in a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah. It took off. Like people wanted it. People I'm wanted thinking it. we're talking over the course of a few years building this thing up. It took off immediately. Within one year of, within one year of launching, like that September. Probably the September of the following year, we were doing 
$700,000 a month. Excuse me? Yeah. Within a one month. Year. A month. Yeah. A month. I want you, now you're a young <laughs> businessman now. You're obviously yeah. in your early 30s. Yeah. Talk to the audience. I'm in my late 30s. You're in your late. No, I you, I was, I'm an old head in Silicon Valley. Not back. today. Not today. Okay. Back then. Oh, oh back then. Okay. Back gotcha, then. Gotcha. Yeah, 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 You're in your yeah, early yeah. 30s. Yeah. Your business is booming. Yeah. Talk to me. Forget me. Talk to the audience mm. about some pitfalls, about things, some growing pains that you guys went through because it's one thing to struggle with your business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's a whole other thing when your business is moving faster than you and yeah. now you have to chase it yeah. if you are going to keep this momentum and yeah. not let things fall through the crack, the, the cracks and people start to look at you, oh, that business is, don't mess with them. They don't have this stuff together. Yeah. So is, is there any advice or any growing pains that you went through, some lessons that you can tell our audience? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so without a doubt, right, like, when it starts coming at you that fast, um, the business scales faster than you as a person can scale. And so now you have to catch up to the business in maturity, in, in information, um, and and you have to learn new skills because what got you to the first to, to what got you to blast off is not necessarily what's going to get you to the moon. Correct. And so you start to see like once things start getting, once like the machine starts going, you start, you start feeling the car shake. You start feeling the rails start to like shake and there's all kind of shit that like can start to break. And so like you got to hire up all these people, right? You got to get new office space that can fit everybody. Um, um, you know, you have to really learn finance as fast as possible. Otherwise, you're going to run out of money or you're going to fuck up the money. Um, a lot of things you have to learn comes from, uh, well, let's play this. So to, like, no person can really scale as fast as something can grow. What you have to learn how to do is manage other people and let manage a larger group of people who can scale with the organization. And so really then it comes, it comes down to you learning how to manage teams and manage a team. And you have to put trust in a lot of people when you maybe are not used to putting trust in a lot of people because you've just been doing it yourself all these years. Um, and, you know, in those times, like when you're trying to keep up with the business, it takes a tremendous amount of focus. There's a lot of temptation to get unfocused and go and do all the, you know, the fuckery on the side and, and uh, prematurely celebrate, right? Uh, which is one thing, like, I always try not to do is like it, there's a balance between like celebration uh, of your wins, but 
you have to do that in a very focused, tight time frame. You win, quick celebration. Now you back to back to the business. There's a whole nother level. You didn't win the whole game. You won one one hand. You didn't win the whole game yet. So I think you have to keep that type of mentality and like stay stay super focused. And you have to work on how you manage other people when things start growing growing that fast. Otherwise, it will get out of control. And a lot of times it got out of control. And, you know, like I, I had employees end up stealing at one point. I had employees fighting with each other at one point. Like we had the office. We, we ended up having, like we grew so fast. I got all these sales reps who were just calling all the stylists from all these inbound leads. And I had, I had like 50 people and we had to get this office super fast. So we ended up getting an office in Richmond, which, you know, it's like, you know, super urban area in, 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 uh, in the Bay area. Um, it's hood. And, but I got it for like a dollar a square foot and I could go, I could adjust and it was monthly. So I wasn't locked in mm-hmm. and shit. We had the office broke into like four times. Wow. You know, like I, I'm up in the middle of, we installing little cameras that go to our phones and I'm up in the middle of the night, fucking looking at the, you know, looking at our shit in the middle of the night. And so um, it doesn't stop. Like the problems just, they just do not stop. It just keeps coming. But, uh, but if you just stay focused and stay on it, yeah, you can do it. Now, I think it's an incredible story you're telling right here. How many employees do you guys have now? Uh, 65. Yeah, 65. So, so you're yeah. still relatively a small operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I, I want to keep it that way from a people perspective. You know, a lot of times people – people ask you like one of the first things people ask you when you run a company is like, how many employees do you have? Mm-hmm. Because that has become sort of an indicator of the size or success of a business. Um, in reality, like what you should be driving for is the highest amount of revenue for the lowest number of employees. Yeah. But I'm glad you're touching. And that's what's efficient. Now. Right. I'm so happy you're touching on this right now because that, and, and that's part of the reason I asked you and I'm happy that, um, you know, your, your employees are as low as they are. People, people do things for perception. Yeah. People do things that they think that they should be doing. For any entrepreneurs who are watching this, yeah. you're looking at a man who has grown a massive business. Yeah. But it's not about how many employees you have. Yes, you hire as needed. Yeah. It's just that. You want to keep your employees low, your revenues high. Yeah. So just hire the people that need to be in the building because while you are grandstanding and you're hiring people for the sake of hiring people, that is just money going out the door. Yeah. So important, and and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. No, it's about the return on each employee like you should be looking at every hire like if i hire this person for a hundred thousand dollars 
I should be making three or four hundred thousand dollars from having this person. This person should produce X amount of dollars for us or X amount of value for us. Um, and you want that number to be as high as possible, right? Like I think Google is like a company where they it's like per employee they make like a million dollars per employee or something like that, right? It's not it. it you don't want just hella people. You want hella money. There you go. <laughs> people, people eat up money. <laughs> so uh, that's just always something I'll point out. What's the next phase? Talk to me about the install program you recently launched. Yeah. So um, we transformed the business in 2000. 19. Starting 2018, we sort of put the plan together. But um, we had to respond to growing competition in the market. And interestingly enough, the competition came from China directly via AliExpress. So you know the company Alibaba. Absolutely. It's like the Amazon of China. Five six hundred billion dollar company. Um, they have an arm called AliExpress, and AliExpress is like their U.S. their U.S. online shopping store where you can buy stuff directly from factories as a consumer. And so, people here started buying cheap ass shitty hair from the directly from these Chinese factories off of AliExpress, um, but they'd be selling it for like half the price, and so it started to drive the prices down and compress the margins for hair in, uh, for most of us who had hair, hair based businesses here. So, um, which made it harder for our stylists to sell. So we looked at it and we came up with, um, we came up with a plan where, um, we would start selling hair combined with the service. So we looked at what is it that we have that no one else has that we can do with no one, something that no one else can do. And so of all the people like selling hair, maybe is the only one that also has a network of beauty professionals. So we looked at that side of the business and said, okay, well, there's the services side of the business where they, where, you know, the hair might cost 250, but you got to also pay 250 to get it installed. So the hair is only half of the equation. What can we do on this side? And then when we look at that side, we realized that there were, there's an oversupply of hairstylists who were all fighting over customers. And so the average number of clients that each stylist had is actually very low. And, but their price is high. Mm -hmm. So we're like, that's off. Then you, you're charging 250, but you might be only doing like four or five people in a month. And so the idea was how much lower would they do it for if I can give them 40 clients a month? I can have you making more money than you were before through volume and keep you busy and booked if we adjust these prices. And so 
we went to all our stylists. We pre-selected who were the best ones. We adjusted the pricing, bundled that into the cost of the hair. So, so now you can buy the hair for the same price that it was always, but the install will be included for free. And Maven pays, it, Maven pays the stylist for that. And we're able to still make money on this, on this offering. And so it's a tremendous deal to the customer. Now it's like half price for the customer um, with way better quality, guarantees, brand, faster delivery, customer service, everything. Um, at the same or lower price than you could buy it from from the factories. And Maven is still able to make margin on that. And the stylists are making more money now than they were before. Yeah, because now they have value. Now they have volume. And we're just funneling the new clients every single day because clients are like, oh, shit, hair and service for the price of shit. I'll let me go. So where, where are the clients learning about this program? Are they learning about it through the stylists themselves? No, that's actually interesting because in this model, we flipped around the marketing model. So before, stylists were the ones that acquired the customer. Mm -hmm. Now, we do the marketing to the customer and acquire the customer for the stylist. So we flipped it around. And now, if you think about what Maven is today, the way that we talk about Maven today is we're a digital uh, salon brand. So we have thousands of Maven certified stylists across the country in every state. You can come to this salon online. You can book a service. You can buy products or you can buy products and services together. And all of these things are at fantastic prices with, with guaranteed quality um, and everything. And, and the business since launching that, like back in 19, it was doubling. It was doubling. So like we were, we were fucking killing it before COVID came and just fucking knocked us off. Goddamn, like our rocker. So, um, but actually, you know, since, you know, since uh, as COVID has continued, you know, the customer has just shown that like, you're just not going to stop her from getting her hair done. Like, yeah, no, that's well, you're just not going to stop that. And so actually the business is, is bounced back actually pretty well. So we, we, we survived this whole storm and I think we're actually going to be a lot better on the other side than we were coming in. Now that's one thing about, you know, all black women, they're going to get their hair done. Like yeah. that's one thing yeah. that is, is going to happen. Facts. Yeah. Um, Amazing story, incredibly inspirational. Um, I, I, I love your story. I'm so happy you gave us some time on our show. Where can people find you? Um, I'm on Instagram at Deshaun I, D-I-I-S-H-A-N-I. -I -I. Um, Twitter, Deshaun Amira, D-I-I-S-H-A-N-I-M-I-R-A. I'm, I'm, I'm not very Twitter active. Um, I'm not that Instagram active either, but, uh, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me at. Okay. And if there are consumers out there that want to buy into the install program, what's the website? So you can go to maven.com. That's M A Y V E N N.com. Um, you can buy hair extension products. You can 
bundle those products with, with free services if you want, um, or you can just book services. So you can just book an install. You can buy hair from somewhere else if you want to just book an install through one of the Maven stylists. Um, the, the service prices are basically half, uh, half price of what you would normally pay somewhere else. Um, um, wig installs, breakdowns, washes, everything that's in a hair salon, you can book through a Maven stylist. All the services are guaranteed. Um, and like I said, half price. Um, and uh, yeah, and please, you know, support black businesses right now. It's important. No, it's really important. And I'm assuming it's the same site for any stylist who do want to become Maven certified stylist. They will go to the same website address, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Deshaun, I can't thank you enough. You are a true power move maker. Thank you. I can't wait to release this episode. Continue success and blessings, and please be safe, my brother. Thank you, bro. You too. And uh, I say it to everybody out there, be safe um, and uh, just protect yourself, protect your energy right now. It's important. Much love, brother. All right, peace. What's up, guys? Thanks for sticking with me to the end of the video. Truly appreciate you. If you like anything you heard here today, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And if you know anybody that can benefit from this message, feel free to share. Peace and love.